All right, Ian, chill out over there. I'm just trying to calm down, okay? <laughs> <laughs> fine evening here in the land of dude check the song out check 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 one two song song <laughs> check mic one two <laughs> this evening we're uh, adventuring into uh well fantastic territory uh, some very eccentric music to say the least <laughs> with eccentric people and uh and much mystery and visage about the entire lots of mystery many mysteries to be had well uh, ian why don't you go ahead and introduce us this evening we're doing Tom Waits, by the way, everybody. So before we get to the birthday, I want to do a quote by critic Daniel Dershholtz. He said, It was soaked in a vat of bourbon, left hanging in a smokehouse for a few months, and then taken outside and ran over with a car, describing Tom Waits' music. <laughs> that's an apt description, if I'm being honest. Like, that's a... Uh, yeah, I, I figured that was a good way to intro the episode there. <laughs> that's a uh, it's pretty dead on, honestly. Uh, it, I mean, honestly, the man has an extreme amount of dynamic. The, he gets a uh, pen for kind of having a very specific sound, even though he, I don't know. You can listen to some of his albums, and it goes from like three different styles in one album. Yeah, it, not just his styles, but like his persona. Like we we're talking about before the episode, he really like people believe his stage act like he's some homeless train hopping hobo (laughs) yeah i know (laughs) who just who just drinks way too much it's like you know he's been sober for like a huge amount of his adult life yeah no exactly (laughs) it it, we we often talk about here how the lore is better and i think a lot of times uh tom waits falls into that more than anybody else because yeah that's because he doesn't let anybody know about his life yeah and he, he honestly puts on like a pretty strong persona his uh his stage presence is extreme and the way he like carries himself is just so fucking interesting that i think that people want to latch on to that but the reality is he's an old man who just hangs out his house now days probably like <laughs> yeah and you have to separate the artist from the art honestly yeah. especially uh, with tom waits well yeah i mean you should with everybody but i think especially tom waits but the art itself is amazing like if you can just appreciate that for what it is like whew. yeah if you can get into like really eccentric like music that's uh a lot of it's based off of poetry you know lyrically and just like world music and stuff like that and just random instruments you don't hear anymore you're in for a treat yeah uh, it's it is worth listening to at least once no matter what like it's a theatrical experience in one way and uh beautiful beautiful art you know musical art in the other way so you know you can enjoy it no matter what and so he was born thomas allen waits on december 7th 1949 the day after lead belly died Oh, shit. 
Oh, has he ever, ever slashed anybody with a razor? I mean, we got maybe some, like some some spiritual transition stuff. I probably shouldn't ask that. Maybe I, I might have spoiled something if he had. But <laughs> it was also the eighth anniversary of the Pearl Harbor attack. Oh, wow! So you know, a little bit of a little bit of history around his birthday. Yeah, yeah, that's something. He was the second of three siblings, having an older brother and a younger sister, and. His father, Jesse Frank Waits, you know, was like a Texan of like Scots, Irish ancestry, taught Spanish at lo- at the local school, and, you know, was an alcoholic. Oh, yeah. Waits would later relate that his father was a tough one and always an outsider. And his mother, Alma Waits, you know, just, you know, she was a housewife and churchgoer, you know, so off to like what seems like the start of a lot of yeah. uh, artist childhood. Exactly. If you want to play if you want to play music sometimes you just have to have an alcoholic father. I mean that's step one. <laughs> that's my problem. <laughs> yeah, your dad's way too nice. That's why he never made it. <laughs> <laughs> but the family would end up living at three eighteen North Pickering Avenue in Whittier, Los Angeles County. And Tom Waits would describe his upbringing as very middle class, you know, and a pretty normal childhood. He'd attend Jordan Elementary School where he was bullied, you know, also makes musicians. So I got one there. Yeah. No, I was I, definitely bullied. Yeah. I mean, bullied people <laughs> make great music too, because that's a little, you got to have a lot of something, you know, you, you got to get there's, something. There's got to be up. hurt coming from somewhere. <laughs> it's like a, it's a, it's a pressure can, you know, you got to put something into it before you're going to get the spray effect. <laughs> maybe that's why there's a lot of, uh, maybe that's why there's a lot of short musicians out there. <laughs> I don't know. A lot of short, famous people in general. <laughs> Not in sports though. Well, yeah, obviously. Uh, wait, aren't polo people short? I don't know. Jockeys. Jockeys, Jockeys are short. Jockeys are short. <laughs> yeah, polo go. people. Oh, are you talking about <laughs> the horse polo? polo? I think or, or it's, it might be horse polo. I don't remember. I don't know. Jockeys are definitely short. They're shorter than I am. Yeah. <laughs> They're be. like 90 pounds wet. Yeah, you couldn't even be a jockey. Could you imagine going in for a jockey job and they're like, sorry, Ian, you're too tall. And you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> what are you, like 5'5"? Five, five? <laughs> okay, man. You son of a bitch. <laughs> Get out of here, you giant. Why don't you just play basketball or something, you <laughs> fucking tall man? All the jockeys start bullying you. <laughs> Leave me alone. I just wanted to ride a horse. <laughs> well, ducks, you don't hit your head on the door when you walk out of here, asshole. <laughs> jockeys have like specific door frames that are way short. <laughs> <laughs> this is the jockey room, man. Don't jump. You might hit your head on the ceiling. <laughs> God, I can only imagine I'd have to sit down and, like, slide into the room sideways. <laughs> Your back would hurt so bad <laughs> after you got out of there. <laughs> Limbo into the room. <laughs> You're just doing yoga the whole time. Like, this is the only way I can keep my back from aching. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> and so during the summer, he'd visit, like, his maternal relatives, you know, around California. He'd even say that, that his uncle's raspy, gravelly voice was the inspiration for what he later became known as with a singing voice. <laughs> That's cool. So, 
I guess he just had an uncle that went around. The, the real Tom Waits. It was Tom Waits' <laughs> uncle the whole time. It's a fucking lie. I knew it. It's not really Tom Waits. Uncle uh, Waits. We, we have. <laughs> well, it's from his mom's side. So. Oh, yeah. We have revealed you, Mr. Waits. You are a phony. <laughs> you are a <laughs> And the lie detector determined that was a lie. <laughs> In 1956, though, his parents would end up separating, and his mom would take the children, and they'd end up relocating to Chula Vista, a middle-class suburb of San Diego. So, you know, still staying, you know, middle-class, nothing, you know, not being broke or anything. Yeah, staying alive. Ah, 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 ah. His dad would often, you know, visit, though, you know, stay in their lives. He'd end up taking them... He ended up taking all the kids on trips to, like, Tijuana. And it was in these trips where Tom Waits would end up seeing, like, traditional Mexican music and stuff like that. And, you know, when he first started realizing, like, oh, there's, like, music around the world. <laughs> there's other types of music. Holy shit. Well, I mean, when all you hear is the radio. Yeah, you no, know. for sure. I, I was the same way. Like, that's one of the reasons I got into, like, crazy international music was one day I was like, holy shit, there is a lot more than what I'm aware of. Yeah, oh, Yeah. And in Chula Vista, he'd attend O'Farrell Junior High School, which sounds like it was named after some Irish dude. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, whenever you put an o, o in front of a last name, right? Yeah, it immediately becomes Irish. Or or an MC. <laughs> <laughs> and it was at this school he would start his first band, The Systems, which sounds like it would, it would be a punk rock band. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's an interesting name. That's a definitely something in, like Tom Waits would be part of. We are the systems. <laughs> well, he would describe it as white kids trying to get that Motown sound. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure that was terrible. <laughs> well, they were in middle school. What could you say? Yeah, I think every middle school band is terrible. But I, isn't that it's like beautifully terrible? You know what I mean? Like, I think be- it's kind of a ah. I miss our days, you know what I mean? Like, you and your Guatemalan guitar. (laughs) That didn't work. It worked, just not well. (laughs) But, you know, he'd also develop a love for the rhythm and blues, like Ray Charles, James Brown, Wilson Pickett, lots of country, Roy Orbison. But he became highly influenced by Bob Dylan. Yeah, woohoo! In fact, he would place transcriptions of Dylan's lyrics on his bedroom wall. Oh, shit. You know, where most kids his age would, you know, put, like, posters up of, like, half-nude women and stuff. <laughs> He's like, nope, Bob Dylan's lyrics up on the wall. Yeah, you gotta put the truly beautiful things up on the wall. <laughs> I wonder if Bob Dylan is even aware that Tom Waits was inspired by him. Oh, I'm sure he is. I mean... <laughs> At this point, he's got to be aware that he's inspired a large amount of the musicians in this era, and just, I think you have to kind of not think about it at that point. <laughs> Otherwise, you get a big, weird ego. And, you know, he'd eventually go to Hilltop High School, and he'd say he was kind of an amateur juvenile delinquent, interested in malicious mischief and breaking the law. I couldn't find any examples of this, but, you know, probably, like, minor shit like we did, you know. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, like, go, go destroying out. porta-potties <laughs> and shooting things with paintball guns. Yeah, well, exactly. maybe not paintball guns, but, you know. Whatever, causing trouble. Yeah, ruckus. exactly. General ruckus. He would later describe himself as a rebel against the rebels because <laughs> he did not like hippies. 
Oh, I see. Uh, well, I mean, he was much more inspired by the 1950s beat generation. Yeah. You know, really loved Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, and William S. Burroughs. You know, and so he probably viewed hippies as kind of the dirty, smelly, you know, just less cool versions of what the beat generation was, you know? Yeah. But Ginsberg was kind of a hippie. He definitely turned into one. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Probably some romanticizing there. I would, I would, but I can only speculate. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, that's kind of the way it is. It, you have a lot of like, uh, there's a lot of historical distance between us and them. So I think our view of Kerouac and, you know, Ellen well, Ginsburg yeah, and we also look at what he did. We look at like the beat generation is like the pre hippies where maybe like they inspired the hippies, but there was, you know, kind of a different attitude about them when they were around. There was still a line in the sand. Yeah. And so, you know, with all these wonderful influences, he would drop out of high school in 1968. Oh, great. And first thing he does when he drops out is he works at Napoleon's Pizza Restaurant in National City. Hell yeah. Starting off on a high musical note right here. (laughs) Yep. Everybody knows if you want to be a professional musician, you got to work at Napoleon's Pizza. Or just some sort of pizza place. Yeah. (laughs) If you don't work at a pizza place, you're never going anywhere in music. It was here... And apparently at a local diner where he would start developing an interest in the lives of the patrons, like he'd start writing down phrases and snippets of dialogue that he overheard from them. (laughs) That's cool. So I don't know, maybe he just didn't connect with normal people and this was his way to do it. Yeah, I mean, uh, sometimes, I I don't know, especially when you're young and developing like that and you're you're, uh, eccentric to say the least, there's a lot of ways that you connect with society and it's not always the, you know, the traditional way. Right. Well, I did something similar just to try and learn how to have a conversation with people where I listen into conversations and try and figure out like the cues in which they're learning to continue the conversation and stuff. Like I never wrote anything down, but you know, I just... Cause I, it took me a long time to learn how to have a conversation with someone. If that seems weird. No, I mean, I mean, that's totally normal. I mean, for, I think most people, I mean, there's obviously people who are born with the gift of gab, but every person has, you know, things that they're good at and things that they're not good at when they're born, you know? Yeah. And here I am 20 years later on a podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you should have studied more, Ian. Ah, shit. <laughs> Maybe you should have written something down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just in the bar with a tape recorder. Like, click. What was that? Nothing. No, don't even worry. You, like, slide it, your phone. It was definitely not recording. a bomb. <laughs> it's definitely not a trigger for a bomb, if that's what you're thinking. I promise I'm only recording your private conversations. <laughs> but keep keep telling me what Timmy did to you. Yeah. <laughs> He would also claim that he worked in the forestry service as a fireman for three years. Apparently, he served in the Coast Guard, and he would end up enrolling at the Chula Vista Southern Community College to study photography, something he considered as a career path. Oh, yeah. Uh, Tom Waits photos, I bet you're fucking cool. (laughs) And before you guys freak out, it's community college. You don't need to know shit to go there, all right? (laughs) (laughs) I know plenty of people who went to community college Without even a high school diploma, so. Yeah, no, well, I mean, that's kind of the point. If you fall, you know, drop out of college or uh, high school, you can go to community college, and then you get that and the other thing. That's what I did. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of people got to do that, you know. I think our the rigid view we have of education is fucking stupid, but, you know, we don't have to really get into that too much here. 
But, you know, while he's working all these jobs, going to school, you know, he started taking piano lessons, getting better, and he started frequent, uh, frequenting, like, folk music venues around San Diego. You know, really just being drawn into, like, the whole scene. And in 1969, he'd start becoming an occasional doormat for the Heritage Coffee House, which held regular performances from folk musicians. He would at some point begin to sing there. I mean, his set did consist largely of covers of Dylan and Red Savin's Big Joe and the Phantom uh, Phantom 309. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a really really fun jam. Which is why it's my first dude check out this song, because (laughs) it's not even Tom Waits. Phantom 309. It's just. I'd never heard it before, and I was like, dude, this is really cool. Yeah, no, and you <laughs> randomly sent it to me in the middle of the week this week, and I had no idea it was attached to the uh, to the show we were doing, so I listened to it without No, because I sent you lots of random <laughs> shit, too. <laughs> yeah, you also sent me some weird Mongolian music this week, so it, <laughs> it, was, like, it was like just normal, you know what I mean? Just another just like, week oh, in my life. Ian sending me more music. I hope <laughs> I like this one. <laughs> I usually like it. We have fairly similar you know, ideas of what good music are. But yeah, I don't know, just the story of the song is fucking hilarious because it's about this hitchhiker and he gets into this dude's truck and he tells him a story about him almost hitting this school bus full of children and he drives off the road and dies. And then you're like, oh, this dude's a phantom. (laughs) This guy's dead. (laughs) This guy's definitely dead. But can you imagine Tom Waits doing that with a piano or a guitar? No, I totally could. (laughs) I could totally imagine it. That'd be amazing. He would eventually start writing his own material, though. Oh, and would he ever? And they were often parodies of, like, country songs or, you know, like, bittersweet ballads influenced by his relationships with girlfriends. Like, you know, what, ev- what every musician writes about. Yeah, we as we have covered with most of them. Yeah. <laughs> Why can't I get laid? I better write a song about it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but... A lot of the these early songs would include like old fifty five and I hope that I don't fall in love with you. You know some songs that would eventually like a lot of people would end up liking. Yeah, I mean those are those are really really good songs. But he would eventually start getting a reputation. He start playing other venues in San Diego. He'd support acts like Tim Buckley, Sonny Terry, Brownie McGee, and one of his friends named Jack Tempchin. And, you know, he started becoming aware that San Diego, you know, didn't really have a whole lot of opportunity for career progression, right? Yeah. And so he'd end up moving to Los Angeles and start playing at the Troubadour in West Hollywood. And it was at the Troubadour that Tom Waits came to the attention of Herb Cohen, who signed him to a publishing contract. Now, this is not a recording contract, but it mainly suggests that he was hired as a songwriter. Oh, okay. And so he would quit his job at his pizza place and concentrate on his song songwriting career. Hell yeah. Bam, starting to make it, right? Hell yeah. <laughs> and in early 1972, he'd end up moving into an apartment in Silver Lake, Los Angeles. Apparently, there's a Silver Lake everywhere. Yeah, we, <laughs> we are very close to a Silver Lake where we're recording right now, so it's kind of funny. It's like, oh, man, we need to name this something that makes it sound beautiful. Oh, dude, what about Silver Lake? Oh, man, that's amazing. Nobody's called it that before. Yeah, we like lakes, and the color silver is cool. There's only a Silver Lake in 46 states, you know? (laughs) And so he'd continue to perform at the Troubadour, and 
you know, gain some more fan base and eventually meet a man named David Geffen, who would give him a recording contract with his Asylum Records. Oh, shit. Now we're on. So it's time to get into the studio. They would end up selecting a producer named Jerry Yester, who once played for Love and Spoonful, which we mentioned in the Mississippi John Hurt episode. Yep. And so they would go to the Hollywood Sunset Sound Studios to start recording. And this is where Buffalo Springfield, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, and The Doors had recorded at. Oh, shit. So that's got some pedigree on it. Yep. And so apparently Tom Waits was pretty nervous, but confident in his material during the recording process. You know, and it would start off slow, but eventually it would progress to Tom Waits and Yester kind of pulling against each other. Tom Waits wanted it to take on a more jazzy sound. Yester wanted a more, like, folky sound. But despite this, Tom Waits would communicate real well with his fellow musicians, like, really, like, telling him the direction of the sound he wanted to go. And this session would take 10 days to record. The first two days were basically just focusing on getting him used to the studio. And both Waits and Yester wanted to record in the studio, or wanted to record in the evening, but no slots were available. So he had to record through the morning and afternoon from 10 to 5 every day. Oh, Jesus. And this album would be called Closing Time. It would be released in March 1973. Didn't sell that well, you know, I mean... How often do first albums sell that well sometimes in these stories, right? Yeah, no, exactly. If you don't get that rocket, like, first album super uh, super fame, you got to start grinding, which he did. But it would have songs like Ice Cream Man, Virginia Avenue, Old 55, I Hope That I Don't Fall in Love With You. And in fact, Old 55, the Eagles would do a cover of it, making that song more famous, which Tom Waits would regard their version as a little antiseptic. Oh, <laughs> also Ice Cream Man is so fun. Yeah, it's a great song. And so in my dude, check out the song. In fact, Ice Cream Man's the first one on there. And there's also a really killer version of the song on his early years album. I think it's volume one, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is volume one, but I can't remember exactly. And then I also got old 55 off of this for my dude, check out this song. You know, I just. Trying to leave it open, you know, try not to get too many. Yeah, there's a lot of material for Tom Waits. Yeah, it's, and it's all over the place, too. So it's like trying to give, like, probably some of his, like, more easier to get into songs, I guess you could call it. Oh, yeah, you do that. And and when we get to the good ones, I'm going to make sure to mention the, the ones oh, that aren't going to be an easy. It, I, <laughs> I left a few songs out just so you could go, what the fuck, Ian? Why didn't you put it yeah, on this mofo, list? What about? <laughs> <laughs> just like I, I did that episode. on purpose. I was like, I'm just going to leave this list short so I can have Pat like spout off of me for a little while. <laughs> yeah, I re-listened to the Dylan episode recently and <laughs> I was thinking about it the whole time. I was like, yeah, I was just berating Ian for not putting my favorite songs on his list. <laughs> <laughs> and so to promote this album, Waits would hire a three-piece band and start touring the U.S. Oh, yeah. Mostly on the East Coast. You know, he'd support artists like Tom Rush at Washington, D.C.'s The Cellar Door, Daniel Keefe at Massachusetts Club Passim. Passim? P-A-S-S-I-M? I'm not sure. He'd support Charlie Rich at, at New York City's Maxis, Kansas City, which is like a, became a famous punk club. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it was like CBGB's Junior. 
Oh, nice. Yeah. And so Tom Waits would return to Los Angeles in June, feeling quite demoralized about his musical career. Aw. <laughs> that month he was on the cover of a free music magazine called Music World, and he would start composing songs for a second album, and he would attend poetry workshops, you know, to try and work out his new material in front of audiences. And he was ready to get back into the studio, had his material written, and instead he was convinced to go on tour with Frank Zappa and the Mother of Inventions. <laughs> yes, Frank Zappa. That's probably a good idea. If, if Frank Zappa says, hey, man, you should go on tour with me, you say yes. <laughs> well, he was invited on this tour after the previous support act, Kathy Dalton, pulled out due to the hostility from Zappa fans. Apparently, Zappa fans are quite dicks, which is yeah. not something I ran across in my research. Yeah, no, I, I, I think <laughs> I've actually heard that before, but it's more like they're very, uh, they're the early form of like indie kids, you know right. what I mean? So they well, have and this is after Zappa did get pushed into the orchestra pit too. So, <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, he joined Zappa on tour in Ontario, and like Kathy Dalton, he found the audience is hostile. He was spit on, jeered at, and apparently pelted with fruit. <laughs> <laughs> Who brought the pineapple to a concert? Yeah, like, seriously, what the fuck? That's so fucked up. Damn, I didn't realize Zappa fans were like aggro like that. Yeah, apparently they were fucking jicks. <laughs> and he did like the members of the Mothers of Invention, but he kind of found Zappa intimidating, which after doing the episode on him, I can see why, because he... He seemed like a highly, like, focused, like, very, you know, just like, this is what I'm doing. Uh. He seems like a guy who would pick an argument or a fight with you for no reason. You know what I mean? Like, no, no, no disrespect to Zappa, but I feel like if you're hanging out in the same room with him and you said something, he would turn and be like, what did you just say? I so disagree with what you said that I'm going to, like, make, like, a 20-minute conversation about it or something. I could feel that off of Zappa. Well, and so after this tour, you know, maybe uh, got a few more record sales off of it. I don't know. Zappa fans kind of seem like it, you know, oh, well, it's not Zappa. I don't care. <laughs> but he would get back in the studio to record his second album, The Heart of Saturday Night. And the cover of this album is actually based off of In the Wee Small Hours by Frank Sinatra. And I I never even noticed that comparison until you put or until you pointed it out, and then I went and made the or the side by side comparison. It yeah. really it is definitely a it cool just, reference. All he really did was made it night and added a hooker. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> I mean that's all he did to it. <laughs> but the title track of the album was actually written as a tribute to Jack Kerouac. Oh yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, he'd basically kind of go on to say that, you know, Jack Kerouac was always kind of chasing the heart of Saturday Night, you know, that kind of oh, stuff. Yeah, I, could, I could see that. But it would have songs like Shiver Me Tenders, Diamonds on My Windshield, Looking for the Heart of Saturday Night. You know, and honestly, I have to admit, this isn't my favorite Not me Waits either. album. Uh, yeah, there won't be any uh, Ian, what the fuck, you've missed my favorite songs on this album because I don't think I have a lot of songs on this album that I really care for. Uh, Tom Waits is amazing, guys. His best work is 12 out of 10, but some of his, like, other work is just, you know, whelming. It's not bad. Well, it's and he, he also has a lot of albums where it's like, there's some songs that are absolutely fucking amazing, and then there's some songs where it's just like, 
Ah, uh, I can't quite see what he's going for in this one. Yeah, no, exactly. So sometimes, especially nowadays, I spend a lot of time with my Tom Waits music. Uh, very like, like plucked. I I have. There's more, a playlist. Yeah, for exactly. my Tom Waits. Yeah, I have. I have playlists of songs from all through his career. But some of the like, sometimes on some of the albums, there are songs that I really don't care for. But that's you know that's the way it should be. And well, the, especially if you're gonna make music this weird, you're never gonna. Hit a home run with everything. It's like Frank Zappa, you know, like yeah, he experimented so much. You're never gonna hit a home run on every song, you know. Yeah, and then when you have one album with three styles on it, you should expect that some of the songs aren't gonna be as well received as the others. And I'm sure there's people who like the songs that I don't like. So I'm sure there's a lot of people who don't like the songs you like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So exactly, it it all evens out in the end. And so after we finish recording. Time to go back on tour with Zappa. <laughs> he did it again? Oh, yeah. And I guess it was just the same thing all oh, over again. Oh, God damn. Bite me once, shame on you. Yeah, but you know what? He's trying to make a living off of it, so sometimes you got to bite the bullet and yeah. just fucking do it. And at the end of the day, it probably was, you know, it did help him. It was still another stare that he ascended. Yeah, I mean, I like it, liken it to any group of people. There's always a certain amount of assholes in every group, so yeah. I'm pretty sure it's like there's like some scientific way of studying this and coming up with a percentage of it too. Yeah, you got the asshole <laughs> there's, percent. There's like in in every group, there's like 15 percent asshole, right? Yep. You get a small enough group, I turn into that asshole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, two people, you turn into that asshole every time. <laughs> as long as you're not Irish. <laughs> If you've never listened to us before, that goes back to a previous episode. <laughs> Just getting that one out there. Yeah, Ian's not actually racist against Irish people, probably. I'm pretty sure I have some Irish descendancy in me, so... <laughs> I'm self-loathing, but not that self-loathing. <laughs> and so, you know, let's get this dude check out this song in here. And we got Shiver Me Timbers. Which, you know, honestly, from this album, you know, that's all you're going to get. Because I'm really not a fan of this one. But yeah. it's definitely worth mentioning because of his progression through everything. And he has a lot of albums. We, we fall in almost the Dylan territory of numerical albums. Like, not quite that many, but he's got a lot of albums. There's also reasons. a lot of, like, soundtracks that he's in that he did, like, specific songs for, too. Yeah, he does a lot of soundtrack work. And it's not surprising because his music is just great for movies and shit. And so in October 1974, he started his first performance as like a headline act, you know, touring the East Coast. So, you know, he's maybe touring with Zappa did help out. Yeah. I mean, like I said, it's still a step that you have to ascend. Even if it sucked, it probably still did contribute to the outcome. And it was in New York City. He'd meet and befriend the singer Bette Midler. Oh, shit. Which... No way to confirm this. There's absolutely no way. But some of the sites that said that there was even like a possibility of a romance between them for a little bit. <laughs> Tom Waits and Bette Midler seems like a really weird combo. <laughs> well, they did do a duet in a song and it's horrible. <laughs> yeah. But, it's, you I know, can, they tried. I can only it's, imagine. It's it's Tom Waits doing his <laughs> thing and, and her like singing her, uh, her voice. And it's just like, this doesn't work this at does, all. This doesn't work at all. Yeah. <laughs> This is dairy and hot sauce, man. But, I mean, if he was dating her at the time, maybe, you know, yeah, it was just like, they... I'll get my girlfriend in on this yeah, one. She on, really baby. wants to sing. We're going to do a duet. <laughs> <laughs> 
And from March to May 1967, he toured the whole U.S. and telling interviewers along the way that the experience was tough and that he was drinking too much alcohol. Oh, shit. In May, he would embark on his first European tour, performing in London, Amsterdam, Brussels, Copenhagen. He's really popular in Europe, even to this day. Oh, yeah. But then again, they're all into all sorts of the eclectic stuff that Americans are too snobby for. Yeah. You know? Like, okay, he can come over here and we'll pay him that. Yeah, exactly. That's typically <laughs> the way it is. If you're just slightly too eccentric, that some of the European crowds, they'll hold on to you for longer, that's for sure. Hey, got to make your money somehow. Hell yeah. And so when he came back to Los Angeles, I guess he'd end up moving into the Tropicana Motel in West Hollywood, which I guess is like this famous hotel that a lot of like stars stayed in and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Partied at. And so, you know, just from the way it was written in the article I read, it seemed like, you know, he did a lot of uh, drinking there, too. So he he joined the partying kind of situation. Yeah. And he'd say about this. I was sick through that whole period. It was starting to wear on me. All the touring. I'd been traveling quite a bit, living in hotels, eating bad food, drinking a lot. Too much. There's a lifestyle that's there before you arrive, and you're introduced to it. It's unavoidable. Oh, damn. Like, yeah, it's just part of the like the community that's going on. Yeah, pretty much. Once you get into that lifestyle, you're in that lifestyle. You yeah. Know? It is much akin to just, like, getting involved in the wrong group. You know what I mean? Yeah, pretty much. I'm sure there was a lot of unsavory characters hanging around this place, too. Yep, that's unsavory characters, Tom Waits. Don't hang out with those (laughs) shady individuals. No, he's a middle-class guy pretending to be an unsavory character. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, in reaction to these hardships, he'd end up recording Small Change in 1976. Now, here is a fucking good album. Yeah, and this album is a lot more cynical and pessimistic, you know, and kind of more like making fun of drinking with, like, the piano has been drinking, not me, bad liver, and a broken heart in Lowell, Tom Traubert's blues, four sheets to the wind in Copenhagen, step right up, you know, like, you know, just a lot. This one started to get a little bit more off the wall than his last two, you know? And he'd say about this one is that he... Tried to resolve a few things as far as this cocktail lounge, maudlin crying in your beer image that I have. There ain't nothing funny about a drunk. I was really starting to believe that there was something amusing and wonderfully American about being drunk. I ended up telling myself to cut that shit out. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Uh, this album also has a real a couple of really good songs like Pacey's and a G string. I don't know. So let's get to the dude check out oh, the okay. song. So yeah. I I don't have that one on here. So what is it? A uh, Pacey's and a G string. It's it's just an an absurd song that is so absurdly good. (laughs) (laughs) And so I've got the piano has been drinking and, you know, I include this one because it's kind of a silly, funny song. Cause he's like, he's like up there like slurring and playing and, you know, hitting a few wrong notes here and there every once in a while. And he's just like, the piano has been drinking, not me. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It is so fantastic. Like, especially for the first few times you listen to it, the novelty hasn't worn off yet. That song is, is some of the most fantastic work he's done. Well, and like I said, you know, I'm trying to kind of bring on songs that probably are a little bit easier to listen to. Yeah. When you've never really had an introduction into this kind of music, you know, but we will have some of his weird stuff on in his later career. And then I also got step right up, step right up. 
Step right up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but this song's like fairly nonsensical too. Like he sometimes it just seems like he's spouting off random stuff just just to have it be funny. <laughs> and we're gonna get into the first instance of Tom Waits and his um litigation. Uh, Step Right Up uh, was not featured, but very closely covered by a Doritos commercial in the 90s. Oh, I was going to put that later later in the episode. Oh, okay. I thought we were talking about Step Right Up. I'm sorry. Jeez. (laughs) Move forward then, Ian. (laughs) Mr. I always have to be in charge. Go ahead. Hey, when you put me in charge of the narrative now. And so this would actually be his most critically acclaimed and commercial success and far outsold any of his other albums. It even broke the billboards top 100 albums for the first time in his career, (laughs) a feat that he would not repeat until 1999 when he released mule variations. Oh Jesus. (laughs) I didn't realize he was that unpopular. Like I knew that not a lot of people listened to him, but I didn't realize it was that bad, but he's loved enough by his fans to be able to keep going. So, I mean, he's artist's artist is what it really is. Like people who make music listen to Tom Waits. For the most part, I've met a few musicians who absolutely hate him. Oh yeah, there's always haters. Haters gonna hate. You know, and along with, you know, this album selling well, it comes with, you know, a higher public profile, you know, and it have interviews and articles in Time, Newsweek and Vogue. And he decided to put together a touring band called the Nocturnal Emissions. Oh, yeah. Bow, chicka, bow, wow. Yeah. It's, a, it's a very implicative name. <laughs> but, you know, he'd end up touring with these guys, like, extensively from October 1976 until May 1977. And he'd get on uh, BBC Two and play The Piano Has Been Drinking. So, I mean, you know, he's getting out there, you know, now, now that he's actually like starting to like sell some albums, you know, he's at least able to maintain his tours probably aren't as miserable anymore. You know, he can live a little bit more comfortably. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, he's got his own band now and he's probably headlining. So he's, he's also on like in this, I think it's like 73 or 76. He's on like the late show. And the late show and some of those Australian night shows that he was on, like you can find him on YouTube, and he is so fucking entertaining. Like it is oh, just yeah. it is just good fun to watch an interview with him, especially on like a like an adult late night show, because he just like gets all weird and like does his little Tom Waits character and then plays music <laughs> and like <laughs> you can always he tell He does him. have the best like persona persona thank you yeah. yeah it really is it's it's legendary i mean i wish i could just be like tom waits every day you know <laughs> like what I mean? he every time he's in public he's acting you know yeah. like that's a, a, a I, he, especially with his extensive acting career I, he probably just looks at it as a you know live acting performance well you would have to especially like if it was centered around a certain level of intoxication and then you remove that you got to be like all right well now i just have to pretend like i'm still drunk out of my mind and so in 1977, he'd release Foreign Affairs. And this is actually the album that would have the duet with Bette Midler on it. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Not going to even mention the name because it's not worth looking at, really. Oof. But, you know, it'd have like, it'd have a, like a spoken, big, long spoken word piece like Potter's Field. And then he'd have like that fun song, Barbershop. Mm-hmm. And this is where he's starting to really start churning out the albums. 1978, Blue Valentine. Yep. 
this is probably his biggest musical departure to date. Like he had a lot more electric guitars and keyboards, you know, never really had that kind of stuff. It was really all like, like piano and jazzy instruments and stuff like that. This is where yeah. he starts to develop his very own style. And honestly, his own style, Tom Waits style in quotation marks is my favorite part of what it is. So. Well, and this was also a lot more blues oriented and less like the jazzy sound. I mean, he still had heavy jazz sound, but there was a lot more blues presence in it. Yeah. And by the end of the day, like that Tom Waits, very special iconic sound ends up being blues, jazz and world music all stuffed together in this amalgamation. Well, and a great example of one of one of his bluesy stuff on here is Whistling Past the Graveyard. Yep, which, which is we, a fucking good song. Yeah, which we talked about in uh the screaming jay hawkins episode honestly i include this song on here because i just love this name christmas card from a hooker in minneapolis (laughs) (laughs) but in 78 he'd also appear in his first film called paradise alley as mumbles the pianist yep and it have some original compositions from him that would make the film soundtrack but they're not really my style you know, like his super, like, jazzy, like, lounge stuff. Yeah. But it is where he would get his start in. Like, he's very competent with music soundtracks. And, like, usually what ends up happening is he gets a supporting role in, in a movie. And then he also does some of the soundtrack. Yeah, usually. I mean, pretty much everything he did, they either took one of his songs or he wrote music for it. Yep. And then in 1980, he released Heart Attack and Vine. Yeah. He just further develop a, a more unique sound with this with like ballads like Jersey Girl and they need to have songs like Downtown and Mr. Siegel. Yep. You know. And so let's get to my next dude check out this song. Lay them on me. We got Barber I wrote it down as Barber Chop. We've got Barber Shop. <laughs> I mean I guess they do chop in there. Yep, Barber Chop. <laughs> we got Whistling Past the Graveyard, Downtown and Mr. Siegel. Yep. And that's, that pretty well does cover, like, what you should listen to from this era. We're not even getting into, like, some of his best era yet, so. No, we're about to. In August 1980, Tom Waits would end up marrying Kathleen Brennan, a screenwriter whom he had met while working on the set of Francis Ford Coppola's movie, One from the Heart. And she is actually regularly credited as a co-author of many of his songs in his later albums. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I never knew that. I guess I just assumed they were all written by Tom Waits at some point. <laughs> it's pretty awesome that his wife is, like, involved in his writing, though. And despite the fact that he shared a manager with Captain Beefheart, it was her who pretty much introduced him to Captain Beefheart. Oh, that's cool. Like, he like, heard of him and heard some of his stuff, but, you know, he was just doing his own thing. Yeah. And he married her and, you know... As you do in relationships, you start listening to each other's music. And, you know, I think from this is where, because, you know, their music's not similar, but Captain Beefheart definitely does a lot of experimenting. Yeah. And so, well, you know, Captain Beefheart gets gets looped with, with a, sorry, we, we've been talking about Frank Zappa the whole time. Like, oh yeah, Frank Frank Zappa, Captain Beefheart. They kind of they're they, they come up in a lot of the same conversations. Yeah, and then occasionally Tom Waits will get thrown in there too. Yeah, because I mean he doesn't he doesn't quite fit that style, but he is like a different form of that style. But it's definitely an eclectic style mm-hmm. that really like when it comes to like these three guys, there's really none other like them. You know, like people try and it's just not it. Yeah. 
I mean, the only band I would say that ever really got close is a more modern band. If anybody's really interested, it's called Man Man. Good old, it's good. It is, and it is comparable to all three of these. At least, at least their earlier albums are. Yeah, their earlier albums are the best. They, I think they definitely did try and go. Okay, shit, we need to like kind of make some more money to keep this going. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, there's always there's always that struggle with musicians where it's like they want to make what they want to make but they also want to make money yeah, you know art versus success and it's unfortunate because i guarantee they when they changed their style they became less successful because they stopped releasing as much and stuff and i mean i i was giving them money when they had their previous style i didn't give them any money in the later career though so well they also had band issues too so oh yeah i, I did look into them because i i when i when i found out they changed i was like why and then like you know, start looking into some other newer stuff, and you know there were some band issues. Yeah, there always is something like that. Yeah, that's why you just need one guy in charge of everything. Like, if you don't listen to me, you're out. Yeah, you're <laughs> my way or the highway, bitch. <laughs> and he would actually, you know, really give credit to his wife for the such a big paradigm shift in his musical development. That's cool. So she was quite encouraging of him to actually do a lot of experimenting. And, you know, she moved to New York with him to start developing the sound. It was very encouraging. And That's awesome. Oh, yeah. Like, sometimes you need that push from someone, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and so it's around this time that uh, Asylum drops him from the record label. Aww. And I... Some sources I read, it's because of his next album, which, you know, I could believe because the sound is so different, you know? Oh, yeah. But he would end up getting picked up with Island Records, and with them, he would release his next album in 1983, Swordfish Trombones. So fucking good. This is one of my favorites, because it's good just front to back. This is a good one. This, is, this isn't my favorite album by his. Mine's probably... Probably more the popular opinion of what his best album is. But, yeah. Uh, this is a great one, too. This this one's got all sorts of awesome songs on it. And, you know, on this album, he really didn't play a whole lot of piano or guitar, which is what he mainly did Yeah, in his earlier stuff. He wanted less common instruments. He'd say, your hands are like dogs going the same places they've been. You have to be careful when playing is no longer in the mind but in the fingers going to the happy places. You have to break them out of their habits or you don't explore. You can only play what is confident and pleasing. I'm learning to break those habits by playing instruments I know absolutely nothing about, like bassoon or a water phone. <laughs> That's fucking awesome. <laughs> That's a cool-ass quote. Yeah. Tom Waits a quote-making uh, machine, though. He really is. And so, yeah, this album, like we've mentioned before, has a ton of different styles in it. Nothing pop-oriented. So if you're into pop music, don't listen to this. <laughs> Run away very fast. <laughs> you will not enjoy this. But it would, you know, have styles like primal blues, cabaret, Roombas, you know, very theatrical approaches to music, tango, early country, European folk music, you know, as well as like Tin Pan Alley type stuff. Oh, it's, yeah, it's a beautiful it's dynamic of all, styles. Yeah, all mixed into one album. In 1985, he'd release what is my personal favorite, Rain Dogs. Oh, yes. And if people thought that he would rain back on his experimentation, 
Hell no. He no. experimented even more. And in a lot of ways, I think Rain Dogs, in, in the popular opinion, is considered to be his his beauty point. You know what I mean? Where he's experimented just enough for it to be really good, but it hasn't gotten stale at all. Yeah, because, there's a there's kind of an opus, like, right here, you yeah, know? Yeah, exactly. But really, like, it's there's this weird, like, almost, like, drunken feel to this whole album, though, too. You mm-hmm. know, like... There's even songs where he ac- accidentally quote, you know, I put the quotation marks in there where he'll like accidentally fall out of the key and then fall right back into the key. Yeah. But it he does it so like perfectly. It's actually kind of beautiful. Yeah. It, it's it's really weird. You know, it's it's those purposeful mistakes. It's you know, you take it akin to like oil painting or something. The the beautiful errors within the painting that make it unique and you know what I mean? Like it it his music is so much akin to that, like, high art of music. Yeah. Without being snobby, it is very... I feel like Tom Waits' music is very unsnobby. Which is funny, because there's a lot of snobby Tom Waits fans. Oh, my God. Some of the Tom <laughs> Waits fans are the snobbiest of all, but yeah. <laughs> Hopefully they don't bring fruit to his shows. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I guess, you know. Tom Waits is, like, reliving nightmares from touring with Frank Zappa. Yeah, no, I can only imagine. <laughs> Stop it! You're my fans! Don't you know what you're doing to me? He wakes up in his sheets tangled in, <laughs> tangled in sweat. Like, <laughs> his wife's me. like, "Are you? do you have another bad dream? He's like, someone had a watermelon. <laughs> Tom, Tom, wake up. Was it the Zappa dream again? <laughs> But this album would actually have quite glowing reviews. Like, Rolling Stone ranked this album number 21 on their list of 100 greatest albums of the 1980s. Oh, wow. Which is saying quite a bit because, you know, as we mentioned, he wouldn't make the top 100 charts till almost 2000 again. Well, let's let's be real honest with the way that not only Rolling Stone operates and the 80s were, the fact that somebody who wasn't like an 80s pop star made it onto that list is absurd. It really is. Because oh, Rolling yeah. Stone typically is all about like the fan base and the record sales and things they like that. They do throw a bone to some of those more obscure artists. Yeah, every once but in a while. But to get them up to 21 is pretty awesome. Yeah, it, it really is resting on the laurels of how fucking good this album is. Well, and in 2003, they would rank the album number 397 on their top 500 greatest albums of all time. Oh, well, shit. Well, there you so, go. So he's made their their top albums list twice. Yeah. And it, it, of which all is time. saying something for an album that's explicitly trying to not be pop. And wouldn't break the top one hundred either. Oh no. Yeah, not even close. And you know, this had even more experimentations on this one with like marimbas, accordions, double basses or upright basses to the layman, trombone, banjos, you know, just all over the fucking place. Fuck yeah. And which is one of the things that makes this album so great is the crazy instrumentation. And he even had contributions from guitarists like Mark Ribbo, Robert Quinn, and Keith Richards. Oh, shit. Keith Richards is on that album? Yeah. I, do you know what part he played? Honestly, you know, dude, I couldn't find it anywhere online. I'm sure the album's got the credits of what he did on there. So I'll have to dig out my vinyl of this. <laughs> <laughs> but... Yeah, I don't have the information for that, unfortunately. I just thought it was cool that Keith Richards was on the album. So maybe he, you know, contributed, like, minor stuff to it. I don't know, but it definitely seemed like he helped out with the album. 
Yeah, that's pretty cool. I, I, I like that. And then in 1986, he'd star in an off-Broadway musical written by him and some other people called Frank's Wild Years. <laughs> and it had quite a successful run in Chicago's famed Steppenwolf Theater. And, you know, this is a, also the name of a song from Swordfish Trombone, too. Yep. And this is when he really started, like, developing, like, his acting career was right around this time, too. Yeah. Like, he started working with a director named Jim Jarmusch, and he, he first put him in his uh, movie Down by Law in 1986, which would actually feature two of so- uh, Tom Waits' songs from Rain Dogs. And this is something I'm going to briefly talk about later, but he had a quite extensive acting career, too. Yeah, he's he actually is in a lot of stuff and a lot of, like, good stuff. Yeah, it, a lot of indie stuff. Yeah. Which, you or, know. Or, like, really good pieces that just aren't, like, represented very well. Ironically enough, like, the movie Book of Eli, I mean, I know that you're probably going to cover all these later, but, like, he's he plays an extremely minor part in it, but I think well, that movie isn't <laughs> as great as well as it should be, you know? He was also in Mystery Men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which, His honestly, part in Mystery Men is so good. Which, honestly, I think is, like, such an underrated movie. Like, I don't know. I grew up loving that movie. Like, even before I knew who Tom Waits was, I was just like, dude, that dude's a fucking weird dude. <laughs> yeah. And that Dr. Parnassus, that's, like, Heath Ledger's final movie, and he's in that, too. Oh, really? Yeah, he's he plays the devil or something, if I remember correctly. That makes sense. He could probably play he, a good devil. Oh, my God. Could you imagine a movie where you meet the devil at the crossroads like, and have it be Tom Waits? That would just, that's like, you know, perfect. <laughs> <clears throat> I did like the French hand kissing thing. I don't know if you guys could tell there from the kissy noises. Mamma mia. Oh, <laughs> wait, that was Italian. Oh. Wee wee. Wee wee. All right. I'm sorry. All of our European <laughs> listeners, you guys have to forgive me for all of that. We're just moving on now. Hey, it's a Pat's Italian stereotype. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping I could use that at some point. <laughs> you were saving your Mario accent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. I really can't do an Italian accent unless I'm doing Mario. <laughs> I can just imagine it now. It's an Ian's note to use Mario accent. <laughs> no no that's just a sticky reminder i keep up on my desktop yeah. for whatever i get the chance if you get the chance use the mario voice everyone will be so <laughs> impressed so in 1987 releases frank's wild years oh yeah and yeah you know, i honestly couldn't find a whole lot of information about this one but this is kind of the last of his like trilogy of like when he first started experimenting like this is it's like Swordfish, Trombones, Rain Dogs, and Frank Wild Year. Yeah, you know it's like these three albums, and you know these are the ones you start with. Well, and they fucking nail it too. Yeah, like these three albums are just so good. You could listen to all three of them in a row, and just it would be like a movie that you wouldn't understand the plot of, but you would love every second. And Rolling Stone would sum up the albums kind of myriad of styles, saying. Everything from sleazy strip show blues to cheesy waltzes to supercilious lounge lizardry is given spare jarring arrangements using various combinations of squawking horns, bass drums, plucked banjos, snaky double bass, carnival organ, and jaunty accordion. (laughs) 
I particularly like the jaunty accordion because I myself am an accordion player myself. So some of these, and he are, plays it very jauntily. Yeah, some of the, <laughs> I don't know, like cemetery polka. Oh my god! If you if you listen to cemetery polka, we haven't done our done the decots for all these songs yet. But no, it, that's what's up next. Yeah, well so then, I, then I won't go any farther. Let's we'll, do check out this song, yeah. and I'll go through my list, and you can yell at me for not including your favorite songs. Them. So we got underground. 16 shells from a 30-06, which to me just screams like, I don't, it just. It's a good song. It's, it's a fucking fantastic it's just, song. It's like, it's like, feels like it should be a metal song, but it's not. Yep. <laughs> We've got Frank Wild, Frank's Wild Years, Swordfish, Trombone, Down, 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 Singapore, Tangle Till Your Sore, Gun Street Girl, Hang On, St. Christopher, I'll Be Gone, Yesterday Is Here, like. I know there's ones that you definitely got the most of them. Uh, I'll be gone. You mentioned it, but I'm gonna double mention it because it's so fucking good. Uh, that is a great one. Yeah, so fucking that's probably good. the best one off of Frank's Wild Years. Oh too. yeah, yeah. I, I think like regardless of what you do, that that song is just stirs emotions, and if it doesn't, you suck. <laughs> but yeah like cemetery polka i think did you mention that one on no there? i didn't okay yeah but cemetery polka if you it, that's another song where the absurdist lyrics are so fucking good that you can't like you'll sit and listen to the song if you never listened to it before just crank the lyrics listen to what he says for a second and just you'll you'll just by the end of the song be grinning so big and you won't understand why because like the whole song is about I don't really know some weird inheritance thing uh, talking about this guy's family. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's something it's, it's something else. Well, and so, you know, after this his his kind of music production will slow down. He's definitely doing a lot more movies, but like, uh, you know, he'd released bone machine in 1992, the black rider in 1993 mule variations, 1999 Alice, 2002, Blood Money, also in 2002, Real Gone 2004, Bad As Me in 2011. So, you know, a little bit more sporadic in there, but it just, you know, I really had to get to these three main albums. Yeah. You know, that it, was my goal for this. And that is where the succulent inside honey mixture of his career perfectly is. But one of the, uh, I do want to throw out some honorable mentions that you touched there, but uh, they stand out. Uh, Bone Machine and uh, Blood Money, those two albums are should be ascended above the rest of the list that you just said there because those two albums those are, are some great so albums. close to being as good as his or like original stuff. Bone Machine is a little too 80s. It didn't age well. Uh, I, I feel like some of the songs in it are really, really good. But Well, I feel like that one has definitely has like an industrial style to it too. Yeah, but it's definitely the industrial 80s style. So like I said, it just didn't age as well as some of the other stuff, so you have to give it a little bit. But, but Blood Money, <laughs> you know, you just can't go wrong with Blood Money. Well, and here's the thing about Tom Waits. If there's even like three songs on, the, on all these songs we mentioned that you like, you're going to find songs you like on every album. Yeah, and instead of doing a decots for every single album, I think we're just going to do a decots honorable mention of the Tom Waits songs that I, we really want to mention. Uh, because yeah, they I've, are... I've got my honorable mention at the, mentions Good, at the end. Because so. I've got a couple myself, and there's, they're so weirdly spread out that, you know, and we'll make sure to throw them on the playlist for this week because this this playlist is going to be uh, going to be wacky and fun. But if you got a long commute, you'll you'll be ready. Well, and like I said... You know, he did a lot of movies. 
Yeah. Like, you know, he did the Outsiders, Rumblefish, which I did not realize he was in the Outsiders. I might need to rewatch that now. Yeah, I, I don't remember him being in the Outsiders, but now I'm going to have to go look for him. Uh, he was in the Stone Boy, the Cotton Club, Down by Law, which I mentioned, Ironweed, Candy Mountain, Big Time, Cold Feet, Mystery Train, The Two Jakes, The Fisher King, Queen's Logic, Night on Earth, Bram Stoker's Dracula. <laughs> Wait, he's in Bram Stoker's? Is he? Is he? Yeah, he's in some movies I did not realize Wait, he was in. That's amazing. I'm going to have to go find him in Bram Stoker's Dracula, too. Uh, the Lost Castle, Coffee and Cigarettes, which is this really weird indie film. I've actually seen that one. Doesn't I used he, to he, own it. Because doesn't he has lunch with Ziggy Pop in that movie, right? That sounds right, yeah. I, I think it's Ziggy Pop. It's Or Iggy Pop. Is it Iggy Pop? Iggy. Did yeah. you say Ziggy? I said Ziggy Pop. <laughs> Sorry. So that's Apparently, a li- I can't hear uh, Z's anymore. <laughs> that's a little bit out of my uh, wheelhouse, guys. I apologize for all the Ziggy Pop fans out there. <laughs> uh, Shortcuts, Mystery Men, which we talked about, but he played Doc Heller, who only made, uh, what was it, non-lethal weapons? Yep. <laughs> it's, it's just, that's that's my, honestly, his favorite, uh, or my favorite position of his, like in any movie or place or role. Role's a word I'm looking for. Uh, he'd be in Domino, the, the Tiger in the Snow, and then Wrist Cutters, a love story. Yeah. Which I actually really liked. It's about this guy who... Him and his girlfriend end up getting broken up with, and he ends up killing himself, only to discover that when you kill yourself, you go to a land where with a bunch of other people who killed themselves, and you know nobody's excited about anything. <laughs> but you can't kill yourself; you're you're already dead. No. It's, it, it's pretty awesome. Like that, that is, his his role's fairly minor, but it's a pretty awesome role in in the movie. So. I think that's where he's best suited. He does those such eccentric parts to where that he's one of the like NPCs that you meet along your your journey. He's not really the main character type. Although I would love to see a movie with him as the main character. Uh, he was in a movie called The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. Yeah, that was the one I was talking about. That's Heath Ledger's last movie. Uh, the Book of Eli, Twix, Seven Psychopaths. Seven Psychopaths is also, uh, I've watched that. That is a well worth watching. Apparently, he did a voice in The Simpsons for someone named Lloyd. I don't know. I haven't watched The Simpsons in so long. It's just. Yeah, I had no idea. Yeah. The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which was like this musical that was released on uh, yep. Netflix a few years ago. It was pretty good. I watched it specifically because Tom Waits was in it. And then we got The Old Man and the Gun and The Dead Don't Die. So that's a pretty solid fucking list of that's, movies. That's right more there. movies than he has albums. That's all I'm saying. I mean, I think the guy was just a fan of art in all of his forms, honestly. Yeah, he, he's a bit of a character actor even when he's playing music. So it's reasonable that he would be make movies as well. And so, like, you know, now we're kind of speeding through a little bit more of his era. In April 1990... Frito-Lay ended up paying him more than $2 million in compensatory damages, punitive damages, and attorney's fees. Because they ripped off his song. In the mid-1980s, Tracy Locke Incorporated Agency developed a radio spot for the new Salsa Rio Doritos. (laughs) The agency came up with an ad inspired by Step Right Up, a song parodying Tom Waits, 
you know, just basically a song that was straight ripped off from him that, uh, you know, sounded way too similar to not be his song, right? Yeah, no, it was, it, if you played the two side by side, we actually looked for it on YouTube earlier and we were not able to find it. I was able to find it like a few years ago when I was showing somebody else, so I don't know if it was pulled because yeah, either side or the lawsuit or whatever, but... If you find it, you can. It's literally just the boom, 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 yeah. boom, boom, boom. And then they had a guy who sounded like him. Yeah, exactly. Well, and in fact, the company Tracy Lockwood auditioned many blues singers, and they'd end up finding a guy named Stephen Carter, a Dallas musician who had actually performed Tom Wake's covers for years and would even do impersonations of them. So they got a literal Tom Waits impersonator. Yeah. And. Tom Waits wouldn't hear the ad until 1988 when he made an appearance on a Los Angeles radio station and it played during the commercial block. He was <laughs> he was surprised by Carter's spot-on impersonation of him. In 2002, he'd say in an interview that he thought maybe he recorded that ad in a drunken blackout. He'd say, I mean, there's a lot of things I can't remember, but I think I would have remembered doing that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so fucking amazing. The impression's so good. He questioned whether it was him or not. Yep. That's awesome. And so after discovering that, he immediately filed a lawsuit against Frito Lay yep. and Tracy Locke. Yep. Did you know that there's a weight stock? <laughs> like a Woodstock, but for Tom Waits? Yeah. No, I didn't. What the fuck? <laughs> that sounds awesome. So it lasted for 13 years. It started in 1991, and the very first one was attended by only like four or five people. <laughs> Yikes. It was on some farm in uh, Poughkeepsie, New York, right? Could you imagine how good that would be? Was Tom Waits there? Yeah. Could you imagine how fucking awesome that was? Yeah. The first one had a free entrance policy, and uh, there'd be like the first, and there'd be like, him doing his films and like all like playing weights music and stuff like that. And just like them hanging out, having a good time. Like apparently in 2003, it would even have like a potato cannon, the Tom Waits gong show. (laughs) 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 And they would apparently release several black cats during mystery hour. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, can you imagine being there, dude? How much fun would that be? It just sounds like he's just doing random things, you know, having a good time. Especially that first year, it kind of just sounds like go to this farm and hang out with Tom Waits the day. <laughs> Which sounds like a good day. Honestly, it probably stopped because people figured it out and, you know, there's too many people there. And he's like, nope, not fun anymore. Yeah, exactly. Once it becomes a real stock, you're like, oh, fuck. And, you know, like. He would eventually have his son play drums in his band for him, you know, and, you know, he's just an odd guy. Like, he'd keep, like, random, like, trivia facts. Like, he'd keep, like, a notebook of that kind of stuff. Like, yep. you know, things like, uh, you know, a cockroach can survive, like, two weeks without its head and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> just weird stuff like that, you know. And, you know, like I mentioned, he'd keep recording and doing his thing and doing whatever, like, you know, he's 71 years old, and I'm sure, you know, once all this COVID crap's over, he's ready to start touring again. Oh, man, I, I'm really trying to catch him before, like, before he croaks. Because he's already an old man, so I'm I'm trying my hardest to actually catch a Tom Waits out. Because I haven't seen him live yet. And here's the thing. There's a 
unauthorized biography about him, but when the guy started writing it, him and his wife start calling his friends to tell him, don't do interviews with him, don't tell him anything about him. He really wanted to keep his private life private, which is why there's not all these like crazy stories about him or weird things he did because he just he wanted his private life to be private. Which is good and reasonable. And every anybody out there who's a Tom Waits fan, if you're a really like diehard Tom Waits fan, be a fan and give him the fucking space that he deserves. Yeah. That's why honestly, like we did the research that is available with the information that's widely available, but it's almost like it would have been too intrusive to study too deep into stuff, you know, because a lot of well, that would have re- required me to like talk to people he hangs out with on a daily basis yeah, too. Yeah, well, you know? and well, I'm just saying, like it, it was possible, but obviously, it just doesn't feel ethical because when the man has made clear that he wants his private life private, and you know, he wants separation, so everybody out there, give him the fucking space because he deserves it. Well, and he definitely had some famous friends who you know were definitely more famous than him, and I'm sure he didn't want to end up like. Every time he walked out the door, people were taking pictures of him. Yeah. Just sound like being a celebrity in America sounds fucking miserable. Yeah. Honestly. And Tom Waits can 100% get away with going to the grocery store and not getting harassed. I can promise you that. He just needs to put on a funny hat. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Because I can imagine. Yeah, exactly. Put like a Yashanka or something on him. You're not even going to have any idea who that old man is. I would. And so this brings me to my last dude. Check out this song. Which is uh, songs like uh, I Don't Want to Grow Up, you know, which is funny because the first time I heard this song, I thought it was a Ramones song because <laughs> the Ramones actually do a killer cover of this song, but they super Ramones it up and turned it into a Ramones song, which yeah. is pretty awesome. But yeah, I Don't Want to Grow Up. That's a great song. Big in Japan. Misery is the, <laughs> misery is the river of the world. Yep. God's away on business. Yep. Starving in the belly of a whale. Yep. You know, that's that's my list. There's there's definitely more, but, you know, I wanted to keep it kind of... Yeah, you, you hit the big ones. The only things that I'm really going to recommend is there is a three-album thing that he did most recently called Orphans, Brawl, or Orphans, Brawlers, Ballers, and Bastards, and that's like each of the three albums, one's Brawlers, one's Ballers, one's Bastards. Yep. And there are two songs on there that are so fucking good. One of them is completely just, like, this one song, I believe, belongs on the, one of those three albums that were his iconic albums, and it just took him too many years to make it. Little Drop of Poison. Oh, yeah, that is a great song. Yeah, that is just such a fantastic piece, and it is it is just so wor- well worth listening to and adding to your favorite list, because honestly, I don't know if there is a more iconic like Tom Waits song than Little Drop of Poison for what Tom Waits really represents. Uh, on top of that, uh, there is a, there's, there's a song called Road to Peace. It's a, it's an eight-minute eight uh, big boy song, and it's uh, it's kind of like a war. Isn't it about the Iraq war? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. An, it's an Iraq war protest song, but uh, I'm not really like worried about the context that much. I think just the actual way that the song is written and the emotions that it portrays are so fantastically brought across that it's well worth listening to regardless of what your, like, your point of view is on it. It even makes fun of George well, Bush in it, too, so it's a little bit dated, obviously. Well, I mean, you could replace whatever president you want in that at this point. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, we're still there. (laughs) 
Let me not get into my yeah, we're not anti-war doing that. politics here. Yeah, we're not doing any of that right here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> You're going to have to wait a few more weeks ah! for that. <laughs> <laughs> no war. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, those two songs are just are fantastically well worth listening to. And goddamn, there are so many more. I, I, I don't even know how I could begin to get into the plethora of songs. I just want to yell at you guys right now. But it's, it's not worth it, obviously. Uh, because there are so many good songs that it would just wash out the value of what we've already presented. Well, and on that note, I think it's time for our last thoughts. I think I'll do this one first. By all means, go ahead. So, you know, honestly, just give them a fucking chance. Because more than likely, if you're into weird music, you're going to find something you like. And then if you find that one song, it's really going to lead you to more amazing fucking songs. Like this is a guy who doesn't write songs for like mass media, you know, trying to be the biggest pop star in the world. He writes the songs the way he wants to. And sometimes they hit. And when they hit, they hit hard. Yeah. And they're fucking amazing. Sometimes he misses, you know, you're going to get that with guys like these, you know, it's just, but you know what? Give him a fucking chance. Cause I mean, He's got so much material out there. The chances are you're going to like something. So I guess if for my last thoughts, I'm just going to keep it cool and simple and say there's something really to be learned from Tom Waits. Too many celebrities and musicians and artists and things like that take themselves too goddamn seriously. Tom Waits is the iconics of somebody who does not take himself too seriously. Even though you may look at some of his character art and some of the things that he does in character and it may seem very much the opposite he may come off as self-aggrandizing or you know you know petulant almost but the reality is that is so much a character that it is a cynical representation of things that he is trying to highlight that are bad almost sometimes it's almost like the negative portions of the character that he portrays is a cautionary tale in and of itself. And it is so unique and interesting and beautiful that I think it's worth just looking at as a character study. Yeah, that's an interesting point. It's almost like, you know, he points out, like, all of these, like, characters that we kind of fall in love with and go, like, yeah, that's not really good dude. Yeah, exactly. It it really points out the flaws that are, you know, possible while still making himself lovable and it proves that while people can have bad qualities and good qualities and they don't necessarily you know they're not mutually exclusive good people can still have shitty qualities and shitty people can still have good qualities and then at the end of the day you know maybe you should just care more about the good things and learn the lessons of uh people who have the bad lessons that they're teaching you and if you want to keep learning more lessons good or bad Give this podcast five stars on whatever media you listen to it on and, you know, check out the Spotify, share with your friends. Yeah, I mean, you know, just yell our name, our podcast name out the window randomly at times. Maybe some people walking down the street will also like us. Uh, I don't know. And mostly, we love you. Have a good night.